when John Calvin returned from exile, he picked up right where he left off. I was not gone nearly as long as he was, and I was not in exile, but still, we're picking up right where I left off. And in fact, we're picking up in the middle of a paragraph. Uh, so uh, I, I try not to do that, but it actually made life a whole lot easier for me because I could just do all of the work for the one paragraph and come back almost ready to go. So um, we're going to pick up in verse 18 of chapter 3 once again. If I can get there. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let's do a quick recap before I begin the sermon proper. And uh, Peter has been addressing the reality of suffering and persecution in the lives of his original audience. And so uh, what he's been doing in this passage is giving examples of people who survived, shall we say, prevailed over such persecution, and he begins with Jesus. And he reminds them that Jesus suffered not because he was a sinner, but he suffered because of their sins. And yet, Jesus has been made alive in the power of the Spirit, and Jesus has been exalted, and Jesus is therefore able to keep his people in the midst of persecution. But he also mentions Noah and the reality of how Noah, during the days of God's patient waiting, preached the gospel to the disobedient people around him while he made the ark. Because, as it says in Second Peter, he was a preacher of righteousness. And how God preserved his family through the flood that came by way of the ark. Alright, hope you're ready. A few years ago, family was in town, and so we all decided to make the trek to the Grand Canyon. You can't visit Arizona, can you, without trying to find a way to get to the Grand Canyon. And so, not trusting Siri, as I never trust Siri with my directions, signs. Signs are an important thing. Signs tell you the direction you're supposed to go. Signs tell you how far you have to go. Signs are very important if you want to go to the Grand Canyon and you have a distrust of Siri. They lead you to the reality, uh, but the signs are not the reality themselves. I don't think I've seen anyone 
go to a place like the Grand Canyon and stand at the sign and go, isn't that magnificent? No, you go and you go to the edge of the canyon and, uh, unless you're, you know, if you're not me, you behold the beauty that is there. I, I see the heights and, and get freaked out. Um, <laughs> I've got to tumble over suddenly. I'm a little queasy when I go to, to uh, places like that. I'd rather look up at glory than down. But you don't confuse the sign with the canyon. But the sign lets you know where the canyon is and whether you've arrived there or not. And so signs are important. They're not separated ultimately from that which they signify, but they are not identical to the thing that they signify. That's an important thing for us to keep in mind as we look at this particular passage because it is about a sign. It is about a sign that points to an incredible reality. So let's begin. Baptism is a sign of our salvation through union with Christ the Savior. So, first off, let's note that baptism is a sign that we are delivered in Christ. As I mentioned, Peter has spoken of Noah's deliverance. And now Peter, in a strange sort of way, connects this to our baptism. And because Peter now brings baptism into the question, uh, some Baptists like Oscar Brooks and George Beasley Murray think that this letter is in reality a baptism homily. I don't agree with them on that. Okay? Because this is the only reference to baptism, and it would be strange to me to have a baptism homily that only mentions baptism once. So, I like their attempt so to speak, but I don't think uh, the evidence bears that out. But Peter here says, baptism which corresponds to this, and the this is the deliverance of Noah and his family through the waters. These two things resemble each other. One is a pattern for the other. Uh, we've seen this word that sometimes uh, appears in, in uh, Paul's writings, um, like the idea of type, typos. Well, this is the anti-type. Okay, so, so baptism is, in a sense, the anti-type to the type of Noah being delivered through the waters via the ark. They were delivered while those very same waters destroyed the disobedient, judged the disobedient. And this is one of the passages that Meredith Klein, an Old Testament scholar who's now retired, uh, talks about in terms of this idea of a water ordeal. Okay, uh, and, and that we see it sort of... Um, Money Python, the Holy Grail. They brought the woman. She's a witch. She's a witch. Burn the witch. Okay, and, they, and she underwent a water ordeal. Okay, yeah, except it was a little reversed. If, if she floated, she was made of wood, and therefore was a witch, and therefore we could burn her. But if she didn't float, 
In other words, she drowned. She was not a witch. It wouldn't work out well no matter what it would happen. But that's the idea of a water ordeal. If you are righteous, you survive the, the water ordeal. If you are wicked, you are judged through the water ordeal. And so Klein believes that baptism is an example of a water ordeal. Noah survived his water ordeal because he was righteous through faith. And so, by faith, he was obedient and built the ark, as we see in Hebrews chapter 11, and therefore was delivered. The idea that Peter is trying to connect us to is the fact that inside the ark there is salvation. Outside the ark there is death and judgment condemnation, but he wants them to grasp the reality that Jesus is the greater ark of salvation. He is the one who does not just deliver from an earthly judgment like the flood, but one who delivers from the eternal judgment upon sin, which whose wages is death. And so, baptism corresponds to the deliverance of Noah. Baptism now saves us, Peter says. Wait a minute. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and so this is one of those things that makes me scratch my head. It takes time to understand this. Remember, baptism is a sign or a picture of, among other things, our union with Christ. Remember, that passage we just heard from Romans 6, we were baptized into Christ. And if you were baptized into Christ, that means united to Him, you died with Him, you've been raised with Him. The baptism is not our salvation, but the thing that it points us to is our salvation. But some people struggle with this phrase. Okay, George Beasley Murray, for instance. See, that was the great thing about this passage. I had to unpack, I had to you know, dig out all the books I had, still have, uh, from those days when I was still a Baptist. Uh, and George Beasley Murray, oddly enough, thinks that baptism is actualized salvation, which sounds an awful lot to me anyway, so, uh, like the Church of Christ. And in particular, the Church of Christ Boston, a, uh, a cultish group that I encountered when I was in college way back when. And yes, for them, baptism was necessary for salvation. And for them, it was not just that you were baptized, and that, for them that, of course, meant immersed, but also you had to be baptized by them. They didn't trust anyone else's baptism. So if you thought you had been baptized, forget about it. You need to be re-baptized. Or, sorry, baptized the first time. Okay, that's how their logic went. Okay, That's very similar. You don't, you don't experience the realities of salvation, they say, until you are baptized. frightening sort of thing. I'm not sure that's 
where we ought to go with our theology. I don't think that's the practice and the teaching of Scripture. We're not saved by baptism. We're saved by grace through faith. But baptism is a picture of that. We see that not only was Noah delivered in his baptism, so to speak, but seven others were delivered in his, in their baptism. One of which was Ham. Now I don't know, the scripture is silent upon the eternal state of Ham, but I'll tell you, it didn't look good for Ham. For the things that he did to his father and the curse that he experienced as a result. I would not lay my money on seeing Ham in heaven. Okay? And so, not all that participated in the baptism of Noah experienced salvation. In a similar way, uh, not all those who were baptized into Moses, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, and who also ate of the spiritual food, Okay, and drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ, not all of those people experienced eternal salvation. But many of them fell in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, is really focusing on people who are presuming on on salvation and who were presuming on grace and using it for license, and they... The Corinthians would, you know, he's trying to use the illustration of the wilderness generation to warn the Corinthians, don't be doing that. If you have Christ, you're, you're going to be pursuing holiness. Peter here has a different focus. Peter's focus, I believe, is on the present reality of salvation, which counters the present reality of their suffering. When we suffer, we're prone to think we have fallen out of favor with God. We are prone to think that He is judging us, that He is against us. And Peter is reminding them, you are baptized people, you have been united with Jesus Christ, and so the judgment of God has fallen upon Jesus. It is not falling upon you at this moment. You experience salvation now. It's not just a hope for the future if, you know, if you do everything right and you live perfectly and all of these things. But because our salvation is grounded in Jesus and we have it as a present possession if we are in Him. If we're united to Christ, we are saved now. Even as we're being saved and will be saved. Salvation now because of Christ who, as Peter has already said in this paragraph, Christ who suffered for sins to bring us to God. And so present suffering isn't necessarily a sign of judgment, but baptism is a sign that Jesus saves. Second thing. First, we saw baptism is a sign that we're delivered in Christ. We also see baptism is a sign that we are cleansed in Christ. Now, of course, what Peter has said thus far could be easily misunderstood if he stopped right there. And praise God, he didn't stop right there. 
He, he clarifies this a little bit beyond what I've said. He says, baptism isn't a removal of dirt from the body. It's not a physical bath. The physical bath of baptism points to something else. Part of what Peter is getting at here is the problem is not physical in nature. Your problem uh, with God is not that you have dirt on your shoes. I spent the last month looking for my boots. I was trying to bring them to New York, hiking my boots. I don't get to wear my boots much in Arizona. Couldn't find my boots up in New York. Maybe I left them in New York at the end of the winter thinking I'd bring, I'd, I'd hike in them when I got there. Looked everywhere in New York, couldn't find my boots. I found my boots this morning. No, I'm not wearing them. <laughs> in my closet, in a Walmart bag, I found my boots because of the, all of the dirt and, and uh, salt debris from the snow was on my boots. And so when I packed them in my suitcase coming back home, I put them in a bag. The problem is not the outside of your body. Just like it was the problem I hid my boots. It was on the outside of my boots. The problem is not stains on my flesh. It's not stains upon my clothes. It's not something I can wash off. I'm very much like Lady Macbeth who cannot get her hands clean because the problem is her heart. It is guilt. It is a spiritual problem. And earthly, uh, physical, material water does not take care of it. Baptism itself isn't what saves us, as I've mentioned. We have the reality of Jesus suffering in His body in order to redeem us because the problem is spiritual. So it's not a removal of dirt from the flesh. It's interesting that they translated it body. It's the same word that we see Jesus suffering in the flesh or the body at the beginning of this paragraph. But he does clarify, it's not that, but it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, here's going to be the rub. Uh, This is where the old Steve and the new Steve come in conflict with each other. Okay, The the Baptist Steve and the Presbyterian Steve are, are about to come into conflict with one another to a degree. There are uh, people such as Oscar Brooks and George Beasley Murray that think that this is the definition of baptism. Not part of the definition of baptism. Do you get the distinction there? So they've taken this one passage, which has a subjective element to it, an appeal okay, to God, Right? They've taken this one passage, the only passage which has a subjective, this, this subjective element in it, and they've made it the whole enchilada. Well, you can't just erase things like Romans 6 and Titus 3 and other passages that point to other aspects of the definition of baptism. Okay? Baptism is, um, 
like a diamond, just like the atonement is like a diamond. There are facets to it, and we are wise to um, take it and look at it like a diamond and get to see the many facets and glories thereof, all of which eventually point to Jesus. Now, not the removal of dirt from the flesh or the body, but an appeal to God for a a good conscience. Or it could be translated from a good conscience. Peter is, I think, here indicating that the problem is, as I said, deep, deep within us, our hearts and our consciences need to be cleansed, and baptism is meant to be a picture of this. For instance, we read from Ezekiel 36, the establishment of a new covenant. And what did Ezekiel, well, God say through Ezekiel? The problem is the uncleanness of your heart. The problem is your idolatry. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sprinkle you with water and put put a new heart within you. And I'll give you of my spirit. It's a picture of regeneration. Cleansing and purification. Okay? And so we see that, I believe, Paul picks this up in Titus 3. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The two things, main things, that are mentioned there in Ezekiel 36. The Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And it's not just Titus 3. We see this as well. The reality of that the blood of Christ is really what cleanses us in our heart, in our conscience. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then again in chapter 10, verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so there in Hebrews 10, the author is connecting, I believe, baptism, the sign, with the reality, the cleansing of the heart. God is the one who cleanses consciences. God is the one who cleanses hearts. And He only does this through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Which, oddly enough, is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 2. We have been select exi- we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in part for sprinkling with His blood. So it's meant to be a picture that God cleanses the heart, not just the body. Now, let's think of His audience, which is slightly different than us, because some of you grew up in the church. 
Peter's audience were all converts and their children, I would imagine. And so most of these people had experienced baptism as converts and were indeed appealing to God. But also we have that question that hangs there from Acts a couple of times, households. I'm not here to convince you of infant baptism, however. But we see that baptism is a sign of our cleansing in Christ just as circumcision was a sign of cleansing. Because circumcision was a, was a sign of the circumcision of the heart, which is a picture of regeneration. The rolling back, the removal of sin, so that a heart is now uh, alive to God, alert to God. For instance, Deuteronomy 30, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so what Moses is saying, and and this takes place, this is one of the promises of uh, the return from exile in Deuteronomy 30. And what he's saying essentially is, you cannot love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul until God circumcises your heart. When God does the circumcision, which is not done by the hands of men, as Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3, but circumcises the heart. And so, I believe that both circumcision and baptism point to the same reality. We see this as well. Romans 4, when it speaks about the circumcision of Abraham, he received it in a missionary context in which he already believed God. And so then he placed the sign of circumcision in obedience to the command of God. And then in obedience to that very same command of God, he applied it to his male children and servants. For them, it was a sign they were to believe, not that they had believed. Because ultimately, it's a sign about the work of God, not the faith of man. It's a sign that calls people to faith. And so children, if you have been baptized, have you come to the fullness of your baptism? Do you believe that which it signifies, that which it points you to? Have you gazed upon the grand canyon of salvation? Or are you content to have a sign? Don't be satisfied with just a sign. And so we must believe in Christ particularly as he is presented to us in this gospel sign. And so baptism reveals Jesus as the one and only one who cleanses consciences so that we can enjoy God. Thirdly, baptism is a sign that we are united to Christ triumphant. I think that's a key little thing to add to this. We are united to Christ triumphant. The reason, he says, we are saved now is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, baptism as an appeal is not meant to uh, imply that 
It's a promise on our part to do better. It's not a promise on our part to try harder. And I don't think any Baptists are thinking that. I'm just clarifying things. Baptism isn't a a promise on our part. It's the promise on God's part. It's a sign of our union with Christ. Not just Christ crucified, but also Christ resurrected. Peter here focuses in the last part of this, this verse on the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ for our salvation. His sacrifice has been accepted. He has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father for our salvation. And so we need to remember we are not united to a dead Jesus. Because a dead Jesus cannot assist us even if He suffered for us. But we are united to a Jesus who suffered for us, but who lives forever to save us to the uttermost, to save us completely. So baptism is a sign that we are united to the one who died, but who now reigns and rules over everything. Jesus is triumphant. He triumphed in part over those who persecuted Him. And so He is able to sustain you when you are persecuted. See the greatness of Jesus here. Baptism is a sign of our union to Christ in His death and resurrection precisely for the newness of life. Which is where Paul goes as well in Romans chapter 6. Let us count ourselves or think ourselves, consider ourselves dead to sin that we might walk in newness of life. Baptism should change us. Because it's a sign that we, that Christ changes us. And so, we do not need to fear the angels, authorities, and powers that have been subjected to Him. We can live in fear of these things. Uh, there are many Christian groups who live in fear of angels, particularly the fallen ones, otherwise known as demons. They can be afraid of spiritual authorities as well as material governmental authorities, which sometimes exercise the power of persecution because they're influenced by the malevolent spiritual authorities and powers. Jesus reigns and is over all of those things. It has begun. He is installed, has been installed. As we see in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus is now subduing these people He is exalted over. These angels, and authorities, and powers. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 this thing again where Paul says, uh, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Now, see how strange that might sound to some people. Wait a minute, how can He reign if He hasn't put all of His enemies under His feet? He reigns. He rules. He's conquering. 
just because the Babylonians hadn't defeated Israel yet didn't mean that they didn't reign over much of that part of the world. Jesus is now extending His rule. He is bringing all things into submission to Himself. And He will accomplish this and then hand everything over to the Father at the end of time. Why does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because persecution is under His control. The very Jesus who loved you and gave Himself for you now walks with you through persecution. He walks with you as one who has endured and prevailed over persecution. Jameson had surgery a little over a week ago. And it was nice to see people who had had surgery, and particularly an appendectomy, encourage him. God preserved me through this. He will preserve you too. And hopefully, Jameson found that encouraging as he lay waiting for his surgery. How much more when Jesus says to us, Behold, I am with you always. Jesus, who prevailed over persecution, who now rules over all things, is the one who delivers his people and delivers them safely through such things as persecution. That's one of the many things that Peter, sorry, Paul mentions in Romans chapter 8 when he says that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not famine, not nakedness, not persecution. None of the tools of the evil one can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has triumphed for us. So, signs. Not just a strange movie by M. Night Shyamalan. Signs are an important thing. But we, we can often misunderstand the nature of signs. For instance, some people confuse the sign with the reality so that the sign is the Grand Canyon. If you, if you possess the sign, you have the reality. Uh, we often call that baptismal regeneration. And that is taught by the Roman Catholicism and unfortunately our, uh, or at least close to it. It's so hard sometimes to pin those Lutherans down. Uh, any Lutherans are in here, I'm sorry. It's hard for me to understand some contemporary Lutheran formulations of theology. My mind must be too small. In some instances, uh, you enjoy the canyon before you get to the sign. But the sign usually helps you get to the canyon. But it isn't the canyon itself. You have to understand the sign. You have to apply the sign as commanded and trust in the Christ 
that the sign reveals. A Jesus who delivers from judgment. A Jesus who cleanses consciences. A Jesus who is resurrected so that you can walk in newness of life. Follow the sign to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we thank You that You have given this sign to the church as an expression of Your promise, as a seal. That those who believe in Christ will receive all of those things and so much more. But Father, before we receive all those things, we need a greater understanding of our need. Even as Christians, we often don't recognize the depths and extent of our need. And so we think we need Jesus a little, not a lot, not completely. Help us also to have a greater understanding of the sufficiency of Jesus. That He is the one who um, fulfills or fills everything that we lack. That He indeed, as uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, is, is our wisdom, our righteousness, our redemption, our sanctification. He's everything for us. Help us to understand that so that we trust more fully. So that when we're struggling with our shame or guilt, we look to Jesus. That when we're struggling with fear and anxiety, we would be looking to Jesus. That when we're suffering pain, we would be looking to Jesus that in all things we would be looking to Jesus. So work by word and spirit to accomplish this within us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.